you're going to pull those pistols and whistle Dixie. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sword of Cinema podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1976's The Outlaw Josie Wales, written by Philip Kaufman and Sonia Chernus, and directed by Clint Eastwood. Here's a clip. Suddenly, his wife and child were dead. The feud was about to begin. <laughs> Hound this Wales to kingdom come. Because of what you did here today, I've got to kill that man. Well, he'll have to run for it now. And hell is where he's headed. Clint Eastwood is the outlaw Josie Wales. Well, not a hard man to track. Leaves dead men wherever he goes. Whenever I get to liking someone, they ain't around long. I notice when you get to disliking someone, they ain't around for long either. Well, the one that everyone's so scared of, Al. Yeah. We got the Josie Wales, Abe. We got reward money coming. You're wanted, Wales. You a bounty hunter? Yeah, he's got to do something for a living these days. Diane ain't much of a living boy. He was out for revenge, and they were out for his blood. And when you're an outlaw, there's no turning back. You're all alone now, Wales. Not quite alone. lives by the gun. He lives by his word. And he lives for revenge. He's an army of one. Clint Eastwood is the outlaw Josie Wales. All right, that was a clip from The Outlaw Josie Wales, directed by Clint Eastwood and written by Philip Kaufman and Sonia Chernus. Joining me, as always, to talk about this great Western is Ricky D. I like how you completely forget to mention Forrest Carter. I don't know if that's on purpose or... 
You know, I don't normally if it's he's, he he wrote the book that the movie's based on. I don't normally do the intro to him, but I figured we would get to that. Well, because I will we'll get to it, but I was told that he had a hand in writing the original screenplay. Maybe you guys know better, and they completely wrote him up as a credit on the actual film. Anyhow, we have a guest today. We do have a guest today. Uh, returning guest to the Sword of Cinema podcast, longtime listeners may recognize. Uh, author, former screenwriter, college professor, Bill Meshi. Meshi. <laughs> <laughs> That's close. You're in the ballpark. That's good. Okay, good. <laughs> I don't feel bad now. The last time Bill was on the podcast, I messed up his name, and everyone made fun of me. And I'm like Canadian. I live in Montreal and Portuguese. I live in a French city. You have no excuses, Patrick. You're American. <laughs> I know. I feel like, is this an Italian name? Is that why it's Meishi? Well, I mean, to be fair to you, it, it is an Italian name, but the family itself has never agreed on how to pronounce it. There's, oh, there's actually three different pronunciations within the family. So don't feel bad. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll try not to, but if I have to say it again over the course of the podcast, let me just tell you, I will be, I will be struggling, agonizing over it right before I do. Um, all right. So I picked this movie. Uh, I have a tendency to pick a Western every, every few months, Rick, as you know. Shocking. <laughs> I know the anniversary for this movie was coming up. It's coming up this year. Uh, it was released, I think, in June of 1976. And so that is why I picked The Outlaw Josie Wales. It's a movie that I have watched a lot ever since I was a kid. I've seen this movie dozens of times, I would guess, because it was one of my one of my dad's favorite movies. And he recorded it off of HBO on, on VHS, you know, when, when I was a kid. Yeah. And it was oh, just, wow. Yeah, it was one of our staples in our in our little VHS cabinet. Um, so it was something we could always go to. Uh, I I remember liking it as a kid, not loving it. I've grown to appreciate it the older that I got as I started to understand a little bit more about it. But uh, you know, I didn't like all those talking parts and the and the romance when I was a kid. <laughs> but uh, but I definitely yeah, I think like. All, I think all the all, all the guys have been there with westerns, right? <laughs> I didn't used to like John Wayne either when I was a kid, believe it or not. But. Uh, yeah. So anyway, that is this is this is my choice. You can blame this one on me, Rick, if you don't uh, if you don't find the Outlaw Josie Wales to be a captivating experience. I, I think it's a great example of of Eastwood's kind of like early direction, and I think it it definitely influenced later on how he you know for people who have seen Unforgiven, especially, I think there's some parallels to be drawn with this movie. You mean the better of the two films? I, I would say that Unforgiven is better as well, but I still really like the Outlaw Josie Wales. I, like you, watched the movie for the first time when I was younger because my dad loves this movie. I think most people I know, most of my friends, all say the exact same thing. My dad loves this movie. He watches the movie every year. That's my introduction to the film. The thing about this film is it's weird. I don't think it really ages very well. It's not really the type of movie I would recommend to a newcomer that wants to get into westerns, especially revisionist westerns. Because it's long, it's over two hours long, I think two hours and 20 minutes long, it's slow, the pacing is not great, it has its issues, but I still think it's one of the greatest westerns ever made. I think I've watched the movie way too many times, and I feel like when I'm watching the movie, because it's so long, I feel myself just waiting for those specific moments, those specific scenes with the great lines that everybody quotes, and I feel like... I'm going through the emotions. Like I'm watching a movie, but I'm not really invested in the film anymore because again, I think I've seen it too many times. 
that said, the reason why I did like this movie, and I, I think I, I mean, I still do like the movie, right? The reason why is because of the characters. Like, the thing about this film, and I think you guys will agree, is Clint Eastwood has made a reputation of playing these loners in westerns, right? And so the outlaw Josie Wells is technically a loner, at least at the start of the film. So he's been victimized, his family is brutally murdered, and that sort of like that's that that is what that is our introduction to his character and that that is when his new journey begins but the thing about this movie is for a movie that's based and centered around the man who's supposed to be a loner a man of action and few words the entire film he's surrounded by a cast of characters and he finds a new family in this new journey so he never really is a loner throughout the whole entire film and that's what I like about the movie. It's the people he meets along the way because that is what makes this movie so different than the previous westerns he starred in, at least I think. Uh, you know, he essentially he plays the same character, the character I think he developed in, say, the dollar westerns. But because he's surrounded by these characters, I don't think he's a loner. So that's kind of like what I like about this movie. It's I like movies that have interesting characters and a lot of interesting characters. And I can argue, maybe we can argue this after the break, that they could have done a bit more with some of these characters. But I do like how he becomes the leader of this group of people who don't have much in common. They're all kind of like from different lands, different backgrounds, and yet they form this sort of like new family. So I think that what I'm trying to say here is this, this movie has a lot of soul. It has a lot of heart. And I don't think it's his best movie. I don't think it's his best Western, but I do think it's one of the best Westerns. Bill, what's your, what's your history with this movie? It's, I'm, I've always been kind of ambivalent about it in that I think I appreciate it more than I like it. it first of all, it's a beautiful looking Western. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Bruce Sertiz, whom Eastwood had worked with several times before, both in movies that he'd started and movies that he directed. I think it's got this lovely autumnal look. And I believe they shot most of it out in Utah. It's, it's just a really handsome looking Western. Um, the issue I always had with it, and it kind of straddles what both of you were saying. The script is very episodic. And I like the individual episodes, but because it's so episodic, there's a certain, I always found there was a certain narrative energy that was kind of missing. And in some ways it's a transitional film for him. And if you look at the films that he directed before this, um, or especially the one Western he had directed before this high plains drifter, that's more Sergio Leone. I mean, he's always, he's always said his two mentors are Leone and Don Siegel. This is him getting more Don Siegel-esque. But at the same time, there's still... Um, and going to what you said about, you can almost see the, the this is the acorn and Unforgiven is the oak tree. That same sense of melancholy that shows up in Unforgiven, um, that sense of a damaged central character that you see show up in Unforgiven, you see that here. But at the same time, it still has these dirty Harry-esque elements that whether he's facing off with one guy or, or an army, <laughs> the guns are going to come out and he's going to win. Mm-hmm. So it feels – you can see the growth of him as a storyteller and as a director. I don't feel it's quite there, but it's a lovely movie to look at. 
Play Misty for me was his first movie that he directed, right? Am I am I right? Right. Okay. So right. I think from my memory, I'm a bigger fan of Play Misty for me and High Plains Drifter than I am of the outlaw Josie Wells. And I think that's because this is him moving from he's trying something different for him. And it'll take him a bunch of movies before he gets there with Unforgiven. But I think if you watch this and Unforgiven back to back, I think you can see, okay, it starts here and it culminates there. Yeah, I, I think he's definitely learning some stuff here. And there's some production things, issues that we can get into as well with this movie that who knows how the, you know, the, the curious turns this production took uh, influenced yeah. how some of that happened. Um, I, I will say, like, you're right about the episodic thing. It is, it's a weirdly structured screenplay. And with an episodic type movie, they can be very good, but you're only as good as your next episode, right? And as soon as one lags, the whole movie starts to sag. And I think that's what happens in the second half of this movie for me. The first half, I, I just rewatching a couple days ago, the first half, I think, flows beautifully. Uh, for some reason, I, I just love every single every single episode that happens through at least the first half of the movie. It's when they actually get out to the homestead where I think things start to sag, where they meet Granny and the Sandra Locke character, Laura Lee. Um, that's where I think things, now all of a sudden the episodes don't quite work because he, he branches off into into the romance, which I still think doesn't work all that great. Um, it didn't work in real life either. <laughs> well, it worked for a little <laughs> while anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, this, that's where this movie can kind of feel disjointed i guess where where the narrative flow doesn't work it still has moments in that second half that are great um yeah. but they are just I moments mean, and the rest of it can drag it down a bit you know now i've never read the original novel uh, but as we're discussing this it reminds me somewhat of when they adapted catch 22 mm -hmm. uh, into film um the the novel is highly episodic but that works for a novel when you when I watch Catch Twenty Two the movie, individual scenes some of them are terrific, but there's not a movie there. Mm -hmm. Now this this doesn't have that problem as seriously. This is more cohesive, but if I were to watch individual episodes from this, I'd go, oh, that's cool, or that really plays, or, or that's got a lot of punch to it. Um, but because the episodes are so episodic, it doesn't get that kind of snowballing energy um that that i uh would look for and I, and I agree with you that it kind of plateaus the first part because it's all built mm -hmm. each of the episodes is adding something and then you're kind of there but you still got maybe 40 minutes to go right I share the opposite opinion. I think the second half of the movie is far more interesting than the first half. I do think the pacing is better in the first half but I like the second half better, and I'll tell you why. So when the movie starts, his son and his wife are murdered, right? So we have a scene in which he buries his wife and his son. He's kneeling on this makeshift cross. The cross falls apart. And at that point in time, it's like he, the man, Josie Wales, gives up on his former life and his religion. And from watching the movie now in 2021, forgetting about the movie, because I watched it a long time ago when I was younger, I thought it was going to be the typical revenge film. The guy's going to have a list of names. Yeah. He's going to go out and kill everyone. It's not. It is sort of a revenge film, but it's not. 
But the problem with the first half of the film for me, it's basically a bunch of montage scenes with a bunch of people shooting everyone. I have no idea why anyone's shooting everyone. It's like everyone's crazy in this movie. Like, why is everybody being <laughs> shot? Why is everyone shooting? I know it has something to do with the Civil War. If I'm not mistaken, this is one of the few movies in which the South are the good guys and not the North, where usually in Hollywood films it's vice versa. Again, it could be wrong. No, you're you're right. Okay. It is, and it's definitely Civil War. And I think, I, I, and Bill, you could back, maybe back me up on this one. Some of those shots to us are like an American audience would just know immediately that this is the Civil War and that these are roving bands of sort of, uh, I don't know if you want to call them splinter cells or something like that, that there were all sorts of troops well, there uh, these, out there. there were these there were these marauder groups. Yeah. Um, as, they make as references matter, as, as like Quantrill. Um, yeah. Who were real life guys that did that. Yeah, there were there were raider groups. But what is the union? Is it the government? Is it is it a different band of people that are trying to form a, a, a peace? Uh, the, the, union well, the, is, the union is the north. Yeah. Um, and and again, if you're if you're if you're American, a lot of these things are instantaneous. And there's um, even at the time that the movie was made, there was still this offshoot theme of um, the noble cause in the South. There, there, there are actually a number of movies that focus on, but don't focus on what the war was actually about, but that deal with um, castoffs from the South as kind of noble people who legitimately lost the war, but they're good people. And you can go all the way back to Vera, Gary Cooper and Vera Cruz. It is a running character type that you see in Hollywood. John Wayne's character in The Searchers was one of those cast-offs from the Civil the War. Searchers, actually, actually, he plays that, uh, and it's not the first time it shows up in a John Wayne movie, although it's not always him. The, the movie he did with Rock Hudson, mm-hmm. Rock Hudson's character, and the people Rock Hudson is leading down to, south, uh, to Mexico, they're also... Um, refugees of the fallen south and he and john wayne bond over the course of that movie so it's it's not an uncommon theme um but again it it does kind of sidestep (laughs) very tactfully what the war was actually about it it was funny here you know who the north that's the north and the other guys are the south it's funny because I had just uh, watched gone, rewatched Gone with the Wind uh, like a week earlier, so this was sort of a curious one-two punch of getting these this southern side of this thing, <laughs> how the the victimization, uh, that, yeah, you know, some people in the South felt, and getting that perspective twice. It, it was just kind of an interesting uh, double bill there. I did notice that the movie actually uses Native Americans to play Native Americans, which, from my understanding, was not the norm in the seventies. And it has a great supporting cast. And they actually do speak in their native tongue, which I thought was really cool. And I was watching some interviews with the supporting cast, which I think was part of the DVD bonus features. And they they basically said that once Clint Eastwood, by the way, we should talk about this eventually, once Clint Eastwood took over the production and became the director, he just allowed them to improvise. And, and I don't know, I kind of like those scenes with the like again i think i like the movie because of the supporting cast and and that is there's two reasons why i like the second half of the film better compared to the first half it's because of a supporting cast we we are introduced to way more characters in the second half of the film but also 
in terms of it being a western it sort of breaks tradition for example with the shootouts like there's so many times watching this movie where i expected you know the typical western shootout the showdown but we don't get the showdown we don't get the shootout and maybe i should save this for after the break but one of my favorite scenes is in the saloon when a bounty hunter walks in he realizes josie wales is in the saloon he confronts him and he's going to shoot him or at least you know they are going to have a showdown but then he decides to leave but then he walks back in and he says i forget what he says he says i just have to come back in like he kind of has to try and assassinate or kill josie wales and of course josie wales kills him but like scenes like that you don't see that in typical westerns prior usually you just get the typical shootout and in the second half of the film there's so many times when you don't get the shootout well guess and no because being the old fart in the room um if once you start in 69 with the wild bunch you start seeing um a lot more revisionism in westerns especially in westerns i mean you see it going all through uh, a, a lot of the big uh, action adventure uh, genres but especially in westerns and they deliberately target uh, a lot of the old familiar tropes it's part of where the energy from these revisionist westerns come from is you going in there with these expectations from watching decades of quote-unquote traditional westerns and then guys like peck and pa or in this case eastwood um you start seeing uh it really wasn't like that things start getting morally messier um they start getting a bit more brutal uh i mean uh as it happens the same year that this came out return of a man called horse came out in this one, the Native Americans are the good guys, and you're rooting for them to destroy the white outpost. So you are seeing uh, both at, at the same time, you're also seeing this increased sensitivity to what the situation was with Native Americans. And that kind of more or less starts, I mean, you can find films earlier than this, but Little Big Man is a big breakthrough in that regard. Mm-hmm. And also in casting Native Americans as Native Americans. I still, like, maybe I watch too many spaghetti westerns, but when I watch westerns from the 70s, I feel like this movie is so different when it comes to the shootouts. Like, there's also the scene in which Josie Wales has to confront Ten Bears, the commander-in-chief, right? And so you think it's going to be this huge epic action scene, and it's not. They just have a uh, a conversation. There's the scene in which he has to chase Captain Terrell, he has, I think, four pistols. He runs out of bullets in all four of his guns. And then the captain pulls a sword and he ends up killing the guy with the sword, right? And then there's the end of the movie, too. Like, it doesn't end with a big shootout. And I feel like most Westerns would have ended at least with the shootout. So there's at least four, if not five, huge moments in this movie where you would expect a shootout and we're not given the typical shootout. And I think yeah, part I, of that is oh, the... No, oh, I was going to say the characters are written that way. Ten bears, they're supposed to be, you're supposed to draw some some lines between ten bears and Josie Wales, that they're in a similar position, that they're sort of being chased. Um, and when all they want to do is be left alone to their lives. And as far as the captain, I mean, there's a bit of poetry, you know, rhyming in the way that the, the captain is killed because he's the one that slashes Josie's face with his sword at the beginning of the movie. And he is killed by his sword at the end of the movie. And I think that there's obviously, you know, 
I don't need to even say it. Like it's pretty much right up there, literally on screen. Um, so I think that's the reason for some of that. You're right that in a traditional Western, you would have had the, the probably had the face off, right? Uh, or at least in a lot of them. Uh, but in yeah, this one, I think it works because they were, they were writing it for the characters. And, and as I said, at that point, you know, remember, I was there for this. You saw Westerns evolving into this. Um, I mean, if you're looking at it from uh, the vantage point of coming in later, um, it looks – and I'm not trying to take away any credit for the movie doing things differently – but you saw this whole movement towards doing things differently. There, were, there was a, a, a growing attempt through the late 60s and into the 70s to try to get it more, I won't say accurate because it's still Hollywood, but more honest, if that makes sense. Something that, that adheres more closely to uh, a moral truth. I mean, the movie itself is kind of morally ambiguous, um, and that was a very common sentiment at the time, in a, in, a, in a sense. And in this, Josie Wales isn't different from a lot of uh, high-end movies that were coming out at the time. Um, it kind of reflected the moral chaos of the day. And you know, one of the – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. go ahead. I was going to say, oh, one no, of the things – you're talking about moral chaos. One of the things this movie reminded me a lot of was, um, like, The Road Warrior, what would come yeah. later. These um, – and, and Josie reminds me a lot of, of a Mad Max type character. And what Rick was saying is how this movie is built on its side characters, just like those Mad Max movies are all built around the other characters. Mad Max in and of himself isn't very interesting. He has a tortured pastor. His family was also killed, and that leads him to be you know pretty reticent. But he's – so that he relies on everybody else around him to sort of teach him the rules of society again. And that's kind of what's happening to Josie here as well. Uh, and I think that's – that's the great part of this moral moral ambiguity of this movie. I, I actually enjoy the scenes, even though they're tough. Like the scene where he walks in on the Native American woman at the shop and those two trappers or gun sellers yeah. or whatever they are or horse traders are, uh, you know, violating her. And he just sits there and watches. And he's not – he is an antihero. There's no question about it. He's not meant to be the, the cowboy in the white hat riding in to save the day. He's got a gray hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, to Rick's point that he was making earlier about um, this kind of ad hoc family that Josie acquires, and in the end also leaves, um, he's very much like Mad Max. There's a family that kind of coalesces around him, but he's damned. Uh, he still can't fit. Mm-hmm. He doesn't go back. To, you know, Josie doesn't go back to them at the end, and, and he's pretty much been given a license to do so. But he doesn't. He knows he doesn't really fit. He got buried when his family got buried. And whatever attachment he has to these people, and he does have one, he fights for them, he defends them. But at the same time, he's kind of a damn tortured soul. He's only ever going to be at home on the road. And the way it ends, I mean, you don't know if he's going to live or die. We know he's hit. We know he's bleeding. I mean, it's my, I'll always tune in. Whatever my ambivalent feelings about the movie are, I always turn in for that final scene. Because I think it's a beautifully done scene, mm-hmm. you know, first in the saloon and then the, the dialogue with John Vernon. Um, and this, does he die? Does he not die? But he can't go back. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a wonderfully ambivalent, ambiguous 1970s kind of ending. 
<laughs> and they even make a reference to him being dead right there in the saloon. I mean, they yeah, he is gone. And and I think that Fletcher, his former commander, knows that he is in a sense he is gone. It's over. Josie Wales is is doesn't belong here anymore. You know, there's a movie that came out just a few years before, and it's it is one of my favorite westerns, Jeremiah Johnson. And there's a scene in Jeremiah Johnson that kind of reflects right on this. It's later in the movie, uh, and he finds this um, on a homestead, this tribute to him by um, the Native Americans that he's kind of been in a one-on-one war with. And the homesteader says, some people say you're dead because of this. Some say you never will be because of this. And then when the movie ends, the uh, and the uh, the balladeer who kind of sort of narrates the movie comes in. Some say he's still, he's up there still. So it's that idea of, is he dead? Is he not dead? The legend lives on, but we'll never know what happened to the guy. And maybe that's not important. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, like Jeremiah Johnson, it ends on this very much of the time note of melancholy. It's not a loss, but it's not a win. No, but there was some healing that took place, so I feel satisfied in the character development, I guess, at the end. I love that, like like you, I love that speech by um, Fletcher, just sort of saying, you know, saying everything's gone. I, I'd like to tell him the war is over. Uh, yeah, I always feel yeah. like that's at least a satisfying, even though I don't know what happens to Josie from here on out, I feel like the, the arc has been satisfied. The thing about the film is the supporting cast, the supporting characters bring out the character in Josie Wales. I think if you remove those characters, this movie would be bland and possibly boring and would drag. And that is what I find unusual about it because Clint Eastwood is Clint Eastwood. He's, I cannot not look at Clint Eastwood. He's just amazing, right? But in this movie, it's really the supporting cast that brings the best out of him, the actor. And what I do like about the movie, like I love the ending. Um, totally agree with everything Bill said, but also it's because in again in most revenge films, as soon as the character it could be you know Kill Bill, it could be The Bride, it could be Unforgiven, it could be whatever revenge film you can think of, right? As soon as the main character kills everyone on the quote unquote list, the movie's sort of like <laughs> over, and the person sort of like achieved whatever it is that they need to achieve in life, and now they're like you know whatever they can move on. But in this movie, it's the reason why he can he can be at peace at the end of the movie is not because he killed so and so people. It's because he actually formed a new family and friends, and he has a new identity, a new life, a new purpose. And that's what I like about the movie. Again, it's not a typical revenge film. It's also interesting that the movie was released in the late seventies, because I mean, I mean, Bill, you said there was they were still making movies in, uh, westerns in the late seventies, but like really, like how many? Because it just seemed like the the genre was dead at that point in time, like early. 70s late 60s like butch cassidy for example movies like that i can think of but late 70s going into the 80s i find this is very odd that this movie was actually a success in 1976 well westerns once you get past uh, the early 70s there's this huge explosion of westerns from the time of butch cassidy into you know like 73 74 in there um they do become much more sporadic but he but there's a difference between Westerns and Clint Eastwood Westerns. He was his own brand. It's like a John Wayne Western. You don't really think of him as part of it. It's not a Western. It's a John Wayne picture. It's not a Western. It's a Clint Eastwood picture. So when he comes back a couple of years later, how many years later is it? 
it's actually about nine years later, he does Pale Rider. Almost nobody's making Westerns, but Pale Rider makes money. And I think it makes money because it's Clint Eastwood. I think if it had been anybody else, I think Pale Rider would probably have evaporated. Um, so I agree with you that by the late 70s, the genre is petering out. But Clint doesn't peter out. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see this, like, even Hollywood knows that. They know that it's Clint Eastwood that's doing this. That's why they aren't they are following up the success of this movie with several other Westerns. They, they understand that it's his draw and his realm. Yeah, he's the guy. And even with movies when Unforgiven was a big success and wins Best Picture, you don't see that followed up with a spate of Westerns. There were there were a few here and there that came out in the 90s, the mid-90s, but it wasn't like all of a sudden that was the latest thing that Hollywood was going to be into. It was still a Clint Eastwood Western. Yeah, I mean, there was a little spike, uh, and, and most of them tanked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't, we don't even remember them. Um, but you're right, it was, it was him. Clint is squint <laughs> carry a weapon <laughs> because it was him. Um, so, uh, and every, so every once in a while you see somebody trying to, I mean, you can see a nostalgia for the Western in some filmmakers and, and somebody tries to give it another shot. Um, but it reminds me of something. One time I was interviewing Sonny Grasso, the, the, the real life French connection cop. And we were talking about, could you ever make the French connection again? And this is of course, decades after the French connection. He says, it's like bringing back the Western. Yeah, you can make one, but who's going to play John Wayne? Right. The genre under Eastwood's hand became the Clint Eastwood genre by that time. You know, after you have this huge explosion in the late sixties and early seventies, it's almost like the genre burns itself out because it's how many different ways can you tell it? We're going to tell it traditionally. We're going to tell it comically. We're going to tell it through visionist history. And they're coming out like they're coming out of, out of the Ford factory. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, they stop drawing because it's inevitable. You get this sense of repetition. Oh, this is a knockoff of the Wild Bunch. Oh, this is somebody trying to do Butch Cassidy again. Um, so the genre is exhausted. Then he comes along, Clint comes along with um, Josie Wales. And People are going less because it's uh, a terrific Western and not to take anything away from the movie, but it's him. Uh, and he kind of shoulders that all the way through Unforgiven. I have a question. Do you prefer Westerns directed, directed, not starring, directed by John Ford or directed by Clint Eastwood? Clint. Really? Patrick? I have an affinity for both, but let's hear, Bill, your reason reason why. Um, I mean, I wish there had been a, a wider menu. Um, Ford was somebody I always appreciated, but I didn't like because I always thought he was overly sentimental. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you give me a choice between, say, John Ford's Cavalry Westerns and John Sturge's Escape from Fort Bravo, I'm going with Fort Bravo. Yeah, for me, it's like the sentimentality thing I get, <laughs> and sometimes it's it's super saccharine, over-the-top stuff. But at the same time, there there's elements of John Ford's filmmaking that I also really, really, really like. Um, yeah. And so I can, I can sort of put aside some of that hokiness, 
Plus, I grew up watching the Andy Griffith show, so I'm okay with a little bit of hokiness. <laughs> but, I you could... know, and that was something that, that Eastwood um, tried to avoid, was whether whether it was the harshness of the spaghetti westerns, an almost operatic harshness, or the kind of thing he does in Josie Wales and Pale Rider and Unforgiven. Um, I, and maybe it was because I was growing up uh, in the 60s, and I was being introduced to the revisionists first and then working backwards so that I always felt a greater affinity for the Anthony Mann Westerns, the Bud Bedecker Westerns rather than Ford. Um, I mean, I agree with you in terms of filmmaking, there's a wonderful Western poetry to his stuff, but it's the Western as an Easterner would fantasize it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I mean, look, you have these homesteaders out in Monument Valley where you can't grow a blade of grass. Right. <laughs> oh, it's completely unrealistic. To me, it I looks always... great. Yes. It looks great. Yeah. You know, but it's, it, it is, um, for me, the, the, and it's not that I don't enjoy watching them, but the sentiment of them always outweighs. And then by the time you get to uh, where he's starting to get more melancholy, even his melancholy is sentimental like uh, the man who shot liberty valance or even um the horse soldiers which i kind of like but if i watch the horse soldiers and even a flawed peck and pile like major dundee i'm going with dundee that's interesting um i just love his westerns but i also prefer howard hawks but if i had to choose between eastwood and ford i also would choose clint eastwood it's tough to say it's a very very subjective thing yeah, I, I tend to love all of them for their all their individual. I mean, if I Unforgiven's going to be one of my my tops um, as far as westerns go, and I do like High Plains Drifter quite a bit. Um, but it, there are things that you know I really love the Searchers, and I do like. We actually did the Manuscript Liberty Balance a few months ago, I think it was that we did this on the podcast. Um, I, I, I there's something about that movie. Yes, it has its problems, but I love John Ford. To me, always felt like a conflict filmmaker <laughs> like he he had the sentimentality but he also had the brutality in him and later on when he tried to do things like the searchers where he was sort of sort of trying to maybe make amends for some of the things that he had done it still was in conflict constantly with what he really wanted to do and i find all of that to be fascinating in his stuff um whereas yeah, howard and- hawks howard hawks is a great filmmaker no question but he always also was a little more i thought by the book when it came to that stuff when it came to his westerns, yeah, anyway, Hawks was more about making it fun than making it the West. Yeah, uh, I would rather watch Rio Bravo over The Searchers any day, even if The Searchers is a better film. But I have a different taste when it comes to westerns. Like my two favorite westerns of all time, off the top of my head, I would choose Johnny Guitar and Once Upon a Time in the West. Those are my two favorites. Well, mine are The Magnificent Seven and The Wild Bunch. Mm-hmm. But uh-uh. uh, you know, I, but and I, but I have a soft spot for all westerns, which drives my wife nuts because she can't stand anything with a guy on a horse. But you got to remember, <laughs> when, when I was growing up, we were still buying our Mattel Winchesters and riding our bikes uh, around the block like we were a posse. We were still playing cowboys, so it's... there was a, a a real emotional connection that we grew up with. Plus. Every third TV show at the time was some kind of Western. J.K. So Hill. Much, much different era. Bounty Law. Um, 
Um, I just want to say one last thing before we go into the break. It's the Western genre is a genre that obviously is is fallen fall out of favor a long time ago. We don't you do see indie westerns pop up every now, now and again, but it's yeah. uh, it's definitely not a, a major thing. Uh, but it is a western, or it is a, it's it's a genre that I think has captivated people. And obviously, you know, you you were watching it when you were a kid. I love westerns still. Uh, I have a friend from Japan who grew up watching American westerns, John Wayne westerns. And that became his perception of America and caused him to move to America. He still, he moved, and he moved directly to Texas and he bought a cowboy hat and cowboy boots because he wanted, <laughs> he wanted to be like that. And I think that's something the Western genre has that maybe no other genre in film can capture. It's this sort of, it is a fantasy fairy tale of America, of a long ago it's, America of yours. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. It's the only truly American myth. Hmm. Because this is the only place that was like that. Right. And I hope that it's something special, and I hope it doesn't completely die. Hopefully people will keep on making different kinds of Westerns, and Hollywood included. Um, All right, with that, we're going to take a quick break, and here's another clip from the Outlaw Josie Wales. I'm Josie Wales. I have heard... You're the Grey Rider. You would not make peace with the Bluecoats. You may go in peace. I reckon not. Got nowhere to go. And you will die. I came here to die with you. I'll live with you. Dying ain't so hard for men like you and me. It's living, it's hard. And all you've ever cared about has been butchered or raped. Governments don't live together. People live together. Governments, you don't always get a fair word or a fair fight. Well, I've come here to give you either one or get either one from you. I came here like this so you'll know my word of death is true and that my word of life is then true. The bear lives here. The wolf, the antelope, the Comanche, and so will we. And we'll only hunt what we need to live on, same as the Comanche does. And every spring, when the grass turns green, the Comanche moves north. You can rest here in peace, butcher some of our cattle, and jerk beef for the journey. The sign of the Comanche that will be on our lodge. That's my word of life. And your word of death? It's here in my pistols, and there in your rifles. I'm here for either one. These things you say we will have, we already have. That's true. I ain't promising you nothing extra. I'm just giving you life and you're giving me life. And I'm saying that men can live together without butchering one another. All right, that was another clip from the outlaw Josie Wales. We are at the portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions. And of course, we always like to stay positive. This is a positive show. So my first question to you, Bill, is what's your favorite scene from the outlaw Josie Wales? Oh, it's definitely the closing scene. Um, I I think it's just one of the great closing scenes. Mm. It has such such a, uh, besides having this nice sense of finality to it, the gentle melancholy of it is, is it's a perfect note to end that story. And this kind of plain spoken poetry that they give to John Vernon's character 
the Fletcher character, um, which is kind of the eulogy for the, for the movie, um, is just so on the money. Um, despite, and I was saying this earlier, despite my ambivalent feelings about the movie, if I see it's on, I try to time it where I can come in for that final scene. Mm-hmm. It's wonderfully acted, I think. Uh, that, that's a big part of it. And it, maybe, Rick, you were talking earlier about how some of the side characters you didn't think got enough time weren't developed enough. And I think Fletcher is one of those characters that we could have seen just a little bit more of because when he is on, he's uh, he's very fascinating. He, the whole idea of him sort of joining up, he didn't intentionally get involved with the trap, and yet he still is siding with the villains, quote-unquote quote unquote, villains of this movie, um, against Josie. So it's an interesting character that could have been expanded a little bit more. But he still plays it nice. Uh, Rick, what is your favorite scene? The final scene. I think it's just the greatest scene in the movie. And that's the thing about the movie. Like, I do think the movie is somewhat overrated. Like, I still think it's one of... How dare you? (laughs) Well, I think it's one of the best Westerns of all time. But some people would put it, like, number one or in top ten. And I don't think it's that high up on the list. But I do think it's a great movie because it has great scenes. And I think of the great scenes, that is the greatest. I And to be fair, I'm cheating... Because I'm referring to the scene in which he walks into the saloon and then walks out of the saloon. And the Texas Ranger makes it clear that he is aware he is indeed Josie Wales. He lets him escape. I guess he's heading heading to Mexico. We don't know. But I like the mystery. I like how it ends and has us thinking about what happens to Josie Wales now. I love, I don't know, just the exchange between those two actors I also really love the scene in which he also once again walks out of a saloon and someone recognizes him. And Sorry, actually, it's not the saloon. It's when he goes to buy supplies. And they're all standing around just like staring at him, trying to figure out if they if they want to pull their guns. And he yes. he says, um, he says, uh, are you going to pull those pistols or whistle Dixie? Like those two scenes to me are like the best scenes in a movie. And it has a lot to do with his performance and how he delivers the line. And it's again, it's Clint Eastwood. There's sort of a snake oil salesman that, uh, that recognizes him as he comes out of the shop and uh, tells the Union soldiers nearby. I'm going to go with something more fun for my uh, my scene. I love the Missouri boat ride scene. I love the whole beginning of the, the approach to the ferry, the sort of the talk with Granny at the dry goods store, picking up supplies. Uh, I love the sort of the, the sneaky ferryman who is kind of flits back and forth between allegiances to whatever side he's just making his living trying to trying to survive <laughs> in this topsy-turvy world <laughs> um and i love the conclusion of that i love it it sort of demonstrates josie's uh, again this is something where there could have been a big shootout this would have been, been would have been a time to have a big action scene but instead it shows josie's uh, brains and why that makes me think this is towards the beginning of the movie makes me think he's going to be able to survive this. Like he is going to, he's a guy that can outwit his opponents, not just outgun them. So we got an example early in the movie of him outgunning everybody. Like he, it's what, this is a Western where magically every bullet misses Josie, but he, he hits everybody <laughs> on the first shot. I like, I'm no, not a huge, yeah, I'm not a huge <laughs> fan of the gunfights in this movie, which is why I like this particular scene as far as, you know, him confronting a bunch of people uh, and using his brains to get out of the situation. I, I got to I got to give a quick mention. It's not it's not really about the scene, but it's about the line of dialogue that Clint Eastwood delivers when he says buzzers got to eat same as worms. Oh, yeah. When, 
this is when there's two two guys kind of like they're bounty hunters i guess or they're just locals who come across him and the kid uh the kid is sick and yeah and he ends up killing both of them and he leaves their bodies the kid asks if they should bury them and he says no buzzard's got to eat same as worms it's a, it's a, <laughs> that also says something about Josie's character, and that goes to the amorality of all of this as well. Like he's yeah. he doesn't really care about stuff like that, at least right now. He's damaged goods, Rick. Well, when the kid dies, he puts the kid on a horse, and I mean, I understand why he, he uses him as a distraction. <laughs> he uses him as a distraction, and his excuse is that they're going to give you a, be- a better burial than I would. But, but you didn't even try to bury the kid. Like you're just making an excuse because you're too lazy to bury the kid. <laughs> Yeah, he has no attachments to this world anymore. It's not until his little family starts to develop that he that he gets attached again. Um, all right. So that being said, Bill, if there was one thing that you could change about this movie, what would it be? I would probably have less gunfights. I'm not going to disagree with you on that one. Uh, because 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 they they tend to get repetitive. Yes. You know, and at a certain point, and, and this is like screenwriting one-on-one, if the audience is already there ahead of you, you've lost something. Now, you already know it's Clint. He's not going to lose. And as I said, that's where that kind of dirty Harry quality interferes with um, the new things that you see him doing in this, is that you know he could be facing off with an army of guys. He's going to come through, and they're all going to be on the ground. And and at a certain point, at least for me, it's uh, okay. Let's get on to the next thing because I know how this ends. Yeah, and it's that specifically the last gunfight that has me mixed because I think it's not choreographed particularly well. Except that I do like the build up to it when all the soldiers ride out to him and he's alone, and then all of a sudden his little pseudo family, their guns come out of you know, the, the slots in the, in the wall and show that he does have some, some supporters. And I also like how that gunfight was prefaced when they thought that they were going to have to fight the native Americans and 10 bears. And he had been telling yeah. them the whole plan, like, you're going to sit here with the rifle. You're going to be reloading. If you get hit, you're going to have a hot poker right here and put it on the wound. That was all done before they thought they were going to fight with 10 bears. And then all of that pays off in this fight. But at the same time, the choreography of the actual gunplay is terrible. Like, he would have got gunned down immediately as soon as he falls off his horse. That would probably be the end of him right there. (laughs) Yeah, it's better on paper than the actual execution. But I do like the idea and the concept. And I do, once again, like how he ends up killing, um, what's his name, Uh, uh, the captain again, Bill McKinney's character. Bill McKinney, yeah. Terrell. Terrell, Terrell. He kills him with the same sword, like you said, Patrick, that he used when he scarred him at the start of the film. So I do like at least the execution, not the execution, but the concept and the idea, but it is sloppy. That's what I mean about the movie. I totally agree with Bill. If I would, if I, if I could change one thing, I would edit out a lot of the gunfights because it makes the movie way too long. Like it's two hours and 20 minutes long and it drags and there's just no reason for all the, for all the shootouts. So I would agree, but I would also give, and you, I think you guys will disagree with me on this, but I, I mean, I'm not really sold on the romance between Laura Lee, who's played by Sandra Locke, and Josie Wales. Like, I, I guess there's chemistry between the two characters because they actually dated in real life, but I'm just not sold on the romance, and I'm not entirely sure if it was needed. Like, she could still enter the film, she, she could be a damsel in distress type thing, but I, I don't know. 
Especially since ultimately it doesn't come to anything. No, not at all. Right. It's one of the most unsad. So, Rick, that was going to be my choice. I would have written her character out completely because I don't think she adds anything to their merry little band. Not really. She's not oddball yeah. enough in the right way, even though they try to sell her as an oddball. I, I just don't really see it. There's, And I don't think they do have chemistry, probably because they were interested in each other in real Dude, life. Dude, there's more chemistry between him and the, and the grandma. Like, no joke. Like, those two actors have more chemistry. Well, I think, because she was cast when Phil Kaufman was still director. Kaufman didn't want her. Mm-hmm. Um, Eastwood had uh, overruled him, and he cast her. And even... Uh, in the other work that they've done together, uh, like the gauntlet. Um, I mean, I don't want to slam the lady, but um, except for Hart is a Lonely Hunter, I never thought she carried a lot of electricity on screen. Which which was her first movie in which I think she won an Oscar or at least was nominated for an Oscar. So she had this great start and then her career just went downhill. She's yeah, got like an ethereal he... presence, but it doesn't have, she can't, bring anything to it it doesn't really ever amount to anything they don't really know what yeah, to do and, with her in this movie and the thing is you know look um he was <clears throat> the way things work in real life in your own personal life is one thing it doesn't necessarily translate onto the screen bogart and bacall that translated to the screen eastwood and Locke never really seems to catch fire um whenever they're on not, not just in this movie just didn't really seem to light up on the screen Mm-hmm. It almost feels like it feels like, well, she's my girlfriend. I'm going to give her a part, and it comes off that way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not very compelling stuff. And I think her character no. honestly could disappear if I look at all the major beats that she's involved in. You could remove all those, and I think you'd still have the exact same movie. Only you would cut out about 15 minutes of time. Yeah. So if you take her out. You cut out a shootout or two, you got yourself, um, you know, a nice 110, 100-minute movie. All right. So, um, MVP. Most This is going to be a weird one because there's a lot of people, I think, who contribute to the success of this movie. And one oh, guy, yeah. his name hasn't even been mentioned yet. But uh, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about Ten Bears? No, not Ten Bears. Because um, <laughs> he's amazing. He's <laughs> such a great character. He's definitely, he, he plays the part perfectly. Uh, but Bill, who would you say is the MVP of of, of Josie Wales? Oh, um, I have to give it as a collective because there's a great gallery of supporting actors in this. Mm-hmm. And again, you really see it in that closing scene. You got Royal Dano there. Um, you have, I'm blanking out with his name, Matt Clark is there. Throughout the movie, there's some familiar faces that you've seen show up in other Clint Eastwood movies. You got Will Sampson. I mean, Bill McKinney. You just got this great supporting rank. You know, they're like the the the, the linemen in a football team. You can't pick one out because they all have to function as a unit. Um, but if you forced me, I would pick John Vernon simply because I think he gets more time than a lot of them. And his character has uh, more shades than the other ones have time to develop. And he's able to sell that ending, um, which is yeah, a, which is a big walking away feeling good about it. Um, but it's it's tough, and a a lot of great westerns have great ensembles. Yes, um, and 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 this is one of the strengths of of this one. Uh, Rick, who would you, who would you say? 
Okay, well, I've already made it clear I love the supporting cast, especially uh-huh. John Vernon's character, Fletcher. But I will have to give it to Clint Eastwood because he is the director and he is the star of the movie. And I think as much as I love the supporting cast, it's the delivery of specific lines, those quotable lines, his performance and... Again, he is the director, so I think I have to give it to Clint Eastwood. Although, we should knock off some points because he bullied his way into the director's chair, which I find fascinating, (laughs) that they actually created a new rule called the Eastwood rule. That's right. right. Yeah. So, I'm not sure how it works, but apparently, like, an actor or someone can't bully a director out of, like, the director's chair and take over an entire film. It's like the Director's Guild passed a law which said an actor couldn't do that. And I think it has a lot to do with the pre-production. Because essentially, Eastwood was able to benefit from all the pre-production that Philip Kaufman did and then get sole credit for directing the movie afterwards. And I think that's where where they probably take umbrage. I don't know, Bill, you're more of an insider in that world than than any of us are. I heard a story. So the story I heard was, and I heard this in an interview uh, with the cast and crew. So basically, the director went out for lunch, like Philip Kaufman, who, by the way, ended up doing some really good stuff in Hollywood. And Clint Eastwood was so f- like frustrated because he went for lunch. This is the story I heard. I don't know if it's true that Clint Eastwood was like, "Screw this, we're gonna film the scene." So he filmed the scene without the director. <laughs> like, what the hell? And then, so, and then sends everybody home. So Kaufman comes back, and they're wrapped for the day. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a. A ballsy move, no question about it. Yeah, so I, it is, uh, <laughs> the whole production of that is bizarre. And obviously Eastwood became maybe the MVP when he sort of took over everything. I, I have to say, if you're going to go with like the entire cast, I guess my favorite is Chief Dan George. And he he got a lot of press, obviously, at the time. And I believe he had been nominated. Was he nominated for an Oscar for Little Big Man? I can't remember. I believe he was. And, and that's the movie that kind of introduced him to Hollywood. Right. Yeah. So I I think he does a fantastic job here as being the talkative one that plays off Josie Wales's, you know, quiet uh, brooding type really, really well. I think they they pair off really well together. If he didn't have the Chief Dan George character, I don't think his character works as well. So and despite like that, that I do like Eastwood's direction and I like his performance, I think that character needed the Chief Dan George character and that he nails it. So he is my pick for him. He's amazing. He's also Canadian. Is that right? Oh, is he? Yeah, he's from Vancouver, which I thought was interesting that they actually decided to cast a Native American that was from Canada, not the United States of America, but whatever. Well, you just got to take some credit, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. So... One of the questions that we we always uh, we always struggle with this one a little bit because we're never really sure how to how to go about it. But the Howard Hawks test, Bill, and uh, so we basically we're going on the rumor. Not really sure whether Howard Hawks ever said this, but it's always been rumored that he said that a great movie is comprised of three great scenes and no bad ones. So we like to ask the question of every movie that we review: Would you consider Josie Wales to pass the Howard Hawks test? Well, I consider that test a low bar. So that being <laughs> the case, I would say, yeah. Because if all you have are three great scenes, uh, I mean, look, you throw 120, 125 minutes at the audience, 
if you can't muster three really strong scenes, you should take up accounting or something. And no bad ones, though. Wait, wait, wait. When we're talking about great scenes and no bad ones. If you haven't had any bad ones, um, that's probably a really short movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how we've. And that's what we struggle with on this sometimes is do are there bad scenes? Like, how do you define a bad scene? How do you find a great scene? Um, there are a lot of good scenes, I think, in Josie Wales. Would you say that there are at least three great ones? Wow. Uh, again, uh, I mean, I agree with you. I don't know how you define that. And it gets to be so subjective. I mean, listening to the conversation that we've had so far and who liked what and who didn't like what, you really appreciate the subjectivity of any conversation like this. Mm. Um, although the only scene that was really great was the last one hold on you guys don't like the scene when he says are you going to pull those pistols or whistle Dixie you don't like that standoff I think that's a great standoff I I would call that a good scene I think it's a lot it's a fun scene but it is the archetype Clint Eastwood scene Mm mm-hmm I, to, to me, when I respond to something being great, there's usually something fresh to it. There's something either I haven't seen before or I haven't seen it done that well before. That scene, it's a lot of fun for me to watch, but that's, to me, Clint being Clint. Yeah, and I guess for me, uh, I prefer like I prefer the Missouri Boat Ride scene to that one. I think that is, a, to me, that's a great scene. It's just always stuck out in my mind ever since I was a kid, too. I love watching that scene. Uh, I do think it has three great scenes because I don't know. There, I love the opening scene. We never really talked about this. Not the opening scene, but near very near the beginning when all the uh, the rebel marauders turn themselves in and they're sitting there reciting their new pledge not to to raise arms against the United States. And obviously, we sort of there's some tension building because Josie realizes that there's a gun in one of the tents, and you know soldiers are sneaking around getting ready to, for, to spring this trap, and the, the Union soldiers are acting like assholes, kind of, but like nice ones. <laughs> and you can tell there's something going on, and Fletcher doesn't really understand it either. There's 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 something nefarious going on, but sort of boiling beneath the surface, and then it, it all comes to a boil and starts gunfire erupts everywhere. And that's the only gunfight, by the way, that I actually do like, even though it, it has a lot of those same principles of magic bullet stuff. Um, I do think that's a great scene. I think it's it's built really well. Hold on. I think the scene in which he meets Ten Bears, I think when he meets Ten Bears, I, th- I think that's a really good, I, I think that's a great scene, actually. I think it's really well acted and well written and unexpected. So I, I actually think there's two great scenes. I don't th- think there's three. I think the ending is great. I'll, I'll go with you on that one. Yeah, Ten Bears and the ending. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh... oh, go ahead, Bill. Uh, I was going to say, Eastwood, I mean, if you look at all of his directorial work, um, it's very uneven. I mean, there's a lot of movies where he's trying for something. Um, There's movies where he pulls it off. And there's movies that kind of flounder. Um, But even in most of his strong movies, there's, and I think it's because he works so quickly that it's not unusual to see that a movie is not always, even his great ones are not consistently great. Mm-hmm. Cause maybe they haven't been excessively planned out like some of those great movies are so that they're so intricately fit together. 
Yeah, and sometimes it works. You know, I mean, he's the director from what I've heard. If it's raining that day and it was supposed to be a sunny day, fine, we're going to write the rain in, but you're not going home. <laughs> and there's certainly something to that. It's also allowed Eastwood yeah. to make a ton of movies, um, which is great because we get to see so many different, him t- tackle so many different subjects. But the reason why this question is tough is because how do we define a great scene? Or a bad one. Yeah. A bad one as opposed to the one that's mediocre right but the, the scene in which um like I, I mentioned this earlier in which he says uh buzzers gotta eat same as worms like that's an iconic scene so if it's an iconic scene and people remember that scene and they quote that scene 40 50 years after the movie gets released is it not a great scene even if it's a short scene well that's the thing i think that if it burns itself into your brain regardless of whether it was you thought it was technically yeah. perfect it obviously was great because it yeah. you remember it. I mean, you remember it for being good, not remember it for being awful or something like that. I mean, if that's the case, then I would say this movie has four great scenes. But then the question is, does it have bad scenes? And 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 I think it does because I, I think that there's like about one or two shootouts in the first like 45 minutes of the movie, which, again, is not needed. It's just a bunch of guys roaming the countryside and it's it's a, a montage of them shooting everyone and i'm like what's the point of me watching this so i would say those two scenes are bad so it does not pass the howard hawks test in my eyes and i would I... also make the point and this has come it comes up in, in more than just this film um the 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 assault scenes i mean one on the indian woman yes. the other one on uh, sandra Locke. um i've always to me, there's a certain gratuitousness to it, that they go as far as they do, since you know how they're going to end anyway. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not a prude, um, but I remember the same thing kind of coming up in uh, The Gauntlet. And um, I've just been uncomfortable with it. It's not like I haven't seen, I mean, I'll watch Straw Dogs and go, this is really uncomfortable, but I get it. Well, here's yeah, the thing. I, yeah. I think one of those scenes you mentioned serves a purpose and the other one does not. This is why I would write the Sandra Locke character out completely. The assault on her serves no purpose whatsoever. And that one yeah. is definitely... I think the assault <laughs> on the Native American, it, it that one, there's a, a moment where Eastwood's eyes lock with her character. I think that says something about his character at that point in time. And you're supposed to feel like he's not necessarily a great guy at that point in time. And even though you want him to desperately do something about it, it's interesting that he doesn't at first. And yeah. it's not until he provokes a little bit later that those two guys actually get shot up. It's because they think they've well, caught Josie Wales, not because he actually incites, you know, he doesn't begin that conflict. And I think that that well, seems different. Yeah, well it's it's less about that the act is there than it's kind of unforgiving in the portrayal of the act. Mm-hmm. And that gets into a whole other category of, you know, how do you deal with uncomfortable sex, sexual material in a movie? How far is it appropriate to go? And a lot of that is a judgment call. But mm-hmm. um, there, are, there are some directors, and he's not the only one who's ever done this, where I felt, I don't know that we needed visually to go that far to get to the point. When she's attacked they pretty much like strip her nude, like the actress on set. Like she does cover her body, but if they don't actually do the cutaways in editing, like she's completely nude for the audience. And there's a certain, yeah. pur- there's a certain prurient angle to doing it that way that bothers me. Yeah, I'm with you on that. The vast majority of the time, I think that that stuff goes way over the top in, in most movies. I don't think it's necessary. I think yeah, it's a, yeah. 
you get your point across. I'm not a big fan of it myself either. Um, I, I, most of the time, again, that scene, I thought about like having that as be one of my bad examples of a bad scene simply because of <laughs> yeah. that element of it. I also think that the the show me romance is embarrassingly bad. <laughs> it's, it's a horrible line, by the way, <laughs> to say right before you start making out you know, with somebody. I- <laughs> I, I remember, um, and I, I never really wrote that much about him, but um, up until he seemed to reach the last half of his career, um, a director I, I had always liked, didn't think he was great, but I liked him, was John Sturges. And you see him at a certain point, he starts minimizing what's obviously the obligatory romance until you get to the great escape, and then there's no women at all. Mm-hmm. And it's perfect. And it makes you appreciate just how obligatory that often is in so many other movies. You know, do we really need this? Is it really serving any purpose? I mean, you don't want to say it out loud because you sound like a sexist pig. But there are movies uh, like The Dirty Dozen where if you had shoehorned one in there, and there is one in the novel, it would be like a knock in the engine. Mm-hmm. This... Um, between her casting and the character itself, Sandra Locke is that knock in the engine. The character doesn't work. There's not a lot of electricity between her and Eastwood on screen. That particular scene is more than it needs to be. Uh, it's almost like every time the movie feels uh, it has to focus on her, it stumbles. Yes. And it sucks away the life that it had been building up, that it had been, uh, you know, growing throughout. Because every other character really does feel alive and a part of the story. And then she just feels like a complete outsider in this. And he has to it's make a, her fit in. It's, it's, you know, for, I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, and again, it's a bit sounding like a sexist pig. It's a guy's movie. <laughs> it's, manly, it's manly men doing manly things. <laughs> Exactly. And yet, Granny works just fine. Like, she can be in there. And I don't mind her picking up a gun at the end and shooting. Like, she works fine with that group. And I think the Native American woman, I forget her name, um, works fine within that group. Um, And I think, you know, Rose works fine within that group, as as in smaller parts. But there didn't need to be, there isn't a a particular focus on either one of those characters that they put on the Sandra Locke character for no reason. And she doesn't interact with anybody else, by the way anybody else so she feels like this amputated segment of the script that eastwood has to sort of go over to every now and again to remind us that she's still there she was once a part of this crew or something yeah it's almost like you know i gotta go home to her tonight i gotta get her some lines <laughs> yeah, exactly so for those reasons i would say it does not pass the howard hawks test i think there are yeah. Bad scenes in this movie, but I do think that it has more than three great ones that I would call great. You know, it's funny because we're talking about this movie, and I come in saying it's one of the greatest westerns of all time. And when I say that, I mean I'm putting on a list of a hundred westerns, not like the top ten, right? But as we're talking about the movie, I find myself liking the movie less and less as the podcast continues. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know what? Here's oh a quick God. story. Oh, look, look, you know. It, it, the movie, and again, it's not the only movie like this. A lot of movies are like a ten-course meal. You may hate salad, you may hate broccoli, but damn, the main course and the dessert were great, mm-hmm. and that's enough. 
Well, here's my quick question to you before we move on to the last question. Is, uh, do you think that Eastwood is a good director of actors, or do you think that sometimes the actors just simply are able to power through his directorial style to deliver great performances, whereas other times they can't? I think it's somewhere in between. Um, he's, uh, in some ways, he's a John Huston kind of director. Once he casts you, he knows what he's going to get, and that's why you were cast. Um, and what you see happen, and it really seems to start happening with Unforgiven, is the casts are stronger. Mm-hmm. If you look at, if you compare a lot of his earlier movies, uh, and there's some familiar faces in there, but they're there's not a lot of really strong supporting um, I'm, I'm putting this wrong because it makes it sound like these people have no talent, but I mean, look, look at unforgiven. Who are the supporting actors? Morgan Freeman, Richard Harris, Gene Hackman. That's the supporting cast. Right. And you see him do that more after unforgiven. Um, and the films feel richer for it. Even when you're doing a lark like space cowboys, I mean, look who's in it. So yeah. all of these guys are bringing more weight to the screen than in, in Space Cowboys than the film actually has. Uh, and you don't see that in a lot of his early directorial efforts. So I think he's kind of a layback, do what I hired you to do kind of director. And as the cast gets stronger, the general level of performance gets stronger. By the way, he took over as the director of this movie, Josie Wales, and yet he finished the movie ahead of schedule. They shot the entire film in eight weeks, which is crazy. Like to completely restart all over and still finish before the deadline and do it all in eight weeks is pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, you never hear about him going over budget or over schedule. Before we move on to the last question, I do want to push back and say that I don't like the look of the film. I know it's the same DOP, the same director of photography who worked on all of his westerns, but I think it's done purposely. Like the thing about this movie, and I think it's actually a plus, is I think the movie is a really ugly movie. Like in terms of like what they wear, the guns that they carry and shoot, everything about the props to the costumes to the overall look of the film, the cinematography, it's all very dusty and old and grainy and and just dirty but i think because of the subject matter because it takes place at the end of the civil war it works in the favor of the film but i don't think it's a beautiful western in terms of like um the assassination of jesse james for example where it looks a little too pretty for its own good See, well, yeah, this, um, this was something I wanted to get into at the beginning, too, because I really do love the first half of this movie when it seems like they are in more of the eastern, you know, whether closer to Missouri or maybe the eastern parts of Texas, um, where there's trees and grass. And I think the movie is yeah. absolutely gorgeous during those. I, there were scenes, especially at the beginning, that I, I, I forgot how beautiful parts of this movie were and how different it felt as a Western to not always be on the dusty plains, you know, the brown plains. It was kind of nice and refreshing to be in a, in greenery. Uh, then the last half of the movie is more your traditional Western location where it is those, those that, brown plains. There's that Mad Max element of you're moving from all this vibrant green into the outlands. Mm-hmm. You're and, leaving civilization uh, behind. You're, you are out where civilization does not yet exist. Can I ask you a question? Okay, again, me being Canadian. So <laughs> does the movie start in Missouri and they, they move to Kansas and then move to Texas? 
it starts originally in Missouri because that's where Clint Eastwood's family is. Right. So, and then it just sort of sweeps westward. I think for the, for the whole movie, you can just con- sort of consider them yeah. sweeping westward. Because the reason why I ask is because what happened to Oklahoma? Like, did Oklahoma not exist at the time? Well, you they might well, have. I think gone... they're in a hurry to get to the west west. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just completely skip over Oklahoma because Oklahoma is in between those states, right? Uh, it depends on the route you take. We don't really know where he went when he, you know, during his Civil War marauding, that kind of thing. It, they could easily have done sort of a hook where they sort of went south and west. And in that case, you'd be just going through Louisiana and Texas. Yeah, and, and up there, if you're in the southern part of Oklahoma, where you're meeting the panhandle of Texas, I don't know that they're going to look that different. And as a matter of fact, Texas doesn't look like the way it looks in the movie until you get down close to the border with Mexico. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain visual, there's a certain visual shorthand <laughs> that's going on here. See, this is where he used to live. And now this is where he is. This is mm-hmm. back in green civilized United States. This is the outlands. And it looks like, and when I was talking about the beautiful look, you're right about the production design. There's a nice grit and earthiness to it. But you need a good DP like Bruce Serkis to catch that grit. And I think he's great at that. I think he was great at getting that lush greenery. And I think even though it's a much more easily traditional view, I think he really caught um, the West. But there's a certain color palette through there that's almost autumnal. It's not quite sepia, but if you watch the lighting in this, um, especially when it gets out west, it's not a bright yellow. There's kind of an amber, almost like a a late afternoon. And it gives, to me, that's what gives uh, the film part of this kind of a melancholy tone. Yeah, it never seems to have that really bright sunlit blue sky, you know, sunshine beating down on the moment there the only time i can maybe remember that is the assault on granny and sandra Locke's wagon but outside of that there's a lot of dusky shots in this as well um yeah i mean it almost feels like a lot of the movie was uh and this is probably filters not timing but a lot of it feels like it was shot late afternoon mm -hmm. yeah so it, it i think that thematically works i mean it's not supposed to be it's not the good, the bad, and the ugly where they're going for starkness. Yeah. Uh, but I think they were going for a certain tone. I mean, you, you see it worked the same way when he does do Unforgiven. If you look yeah. at the color palette in the film, um, there's a certain somberness throughout the film. That's and definitely the um, case. Yeah, and even when he did Tell Ryder, which is a movie I do not like, um, but I think it's beautifully shot. Again, there's some interesting choices of the color palette. And I keep thinking that has more to do with his cinematographer than with him because of the way he whizzes through these productions. Um, but he <laughs> trusts his team. You know, as I said, they know what he wants. They know what he's after. They know what he's looking for. Um, and he's put together a very, very efficient, effective uh, production teams for his film. I'm shocked that this movie was nominated for original music score because the music is my least favorite thing about the movie, apart from maybe Sandra Locke's character. I mean, I mostly find it to be forgettable, I guess. I don't know. It's hard to 
I'm not a great judge of, of musical scores, so I'm not going to weigh in too much on this can one. You, can you think of the theme song? Just the theme song. Forget about the rest of the score. I can't. I don't know. I, the Dixie I, yeah, was their theme I, I, song. <laughs> I, I don't remember. I, I have to admit, I do not remember it very well, and I, I'm a Jerry Fielding fan. Um, it was the first they they actually did. This was the first time he had worked with Jerry Fielding, and then they would do um, a couple of pictures together. And they apparently had worked out some sort of rapport. Um, but yeah, I don't really, I don't really remember it, and I, I certainly don't consider it among Fielding's best. I keep thinking maybe they felt like they owed him one for uh, the Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs. And maybe that's it. I mean, honestly, he uses Dixieland quite a bit, so that that seems to be. That's the overriding thing that I get from this. And Rose of Alabama, there's two songs that essentially stick out in this, and and that's it. And he sort of capitalizes on those at the right moments as little themes for people. But outside of that, I don't really remember the score. But you also, you also got to remember, um, Fielding had been blacklisted in the 50s. And when he starts getting work again, uh, I think it's really... It's a typical, I was out of work, and now I'm just going to grab work. Which makes sense. I mean, why not? Um, Um, (laughs) One of his first gigs, he had done the music for Groucho Marx's You Bet Your Life game show. (laughs) I forgot that even existed. He had been he had been this up and coming guy, um, uh, but by his own admission, he was very mouthy, and he got involved in the whole '50s blacklist thing, and then he was out of work until what was the Otto Preminger uh, political movie, Advise and Consent. Oh, okay. He had a big he had a this is by his own admission he had a big mouth, um, started saying the kind of things that in the '50s in the U.S. got you blacklisted. Get yourself labeled. Uh, I don't know if that's why he had a big mouth, um, but he did. Uh, as I said, I had read an interview with him, and he was just one of these guys who was always spoiling for a fight. As a matter of fact, when he was working with Sam Peckinpah, and they did a couple of pictures together, he and Peckinpah did nothing but fight, which is <laughs> when finally, uh, after he does Killer Elite, <laughs> I can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm just shocked he was nominated for three academy awards i really don't like his music anyhow he's also canadian by the way uh or no wait or he moved <laughs> he moved to canada or he's canadian or became canadian i don't know there's a lot of canadians working on this movie <laughs> well then maybe we've got an audience for this movie going forward all right so bill one the last question that we'd like to ask we've kind of gone back and forth on it but is there an audience for this movie going forward do you think Josie Wales can survive? Well, the whole genre is kind of evaporated. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the audience for it is us old guys and film geeks and people who mourn the, the passing of the Western. Um, but uh, a new generation of, of uh, film goers, you know, I, I say this <laughs> with a certain grim resignation. Uh, no, the Western just has not been able to get much traction in the last 20, 
some odd years. I mean, not that there's anybody out there who's been really good at it either, um, but there's so little emotional connection to the genre. You got to remember when, when they start making Westerns all the way back, there was still a West. Right. Wyatt Earp was consultant on some of these movies. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, and even when you get into the thirties and the forties, it's not like the old West was that long past. And then what kept that alive was, um, like I said, there was tons of Western movies. There was tons of Western TV shows when TV comes in. And that was all keeping that, that grand American myth alive. And that manages to carry through into the early 70s because what filmmakers then, even young filmmakers found, was it was a great genre to comment on the day. It was this very pliable genre you could do a western about anything and they did they did westerns about race and they did westerns that were kind of allusions to the vietnam war um and then it kind of burns itself out and it's never really come back you've had singular successes but as a genre i just don't think subsequent generations have the same kind of emotional connection to it that they used to i mean it's like war movies look i I teach college um, I'll ask my students who fought who in World War II and you kind of get shocked at the answers you get so I, I think the same thing has happened to uh, the war movie is people have really lost a touch for it because people don't understand it anymore who's doing what to who the, 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 the last couple of wars we've been in are so both ambiguous and complex there's this this emotional disconnect with the genre, and I think it's there with the Western as well. I, I really don't see a future outside of people like us for a movie like that, or for any of the, the, the even grand Westerns. So, well, actually, the weird thing is, one of the most popular things on television these days is technically a Western. It's The Mandalorian. It's just that nowadays, the Westerns we get tend to mix genres, where in this case, it's like science fiction meets a Western, right? Like, to answer your question, Patrick, the movie's for people who like Westerns, right? And the movie's for people who also have an attention span because again it is long there are stretches where we can fast forward and it's like we said throughout the podcast it's one of those movies where you just want to get to like the good scenes like those scenes in which are very quotable but there's a lot of good westerns that have been made in the past like 20 years i mean you think of uh the hateful eight which i like i know not not a lot lot of people like it but i like it cold mountain no country for old men there will be blood there are just different kind of westerns bone tomahawk True Grit, yeah, exactly. Django Unchained. But they're also very niche, most of them. Yes, uh, Again, you look very. At, uh, you look at um, And There Will Be Blood, and even though Country Fall Men, which for the Coen brothers was a hit, it capped out at like $70-odd million, which is great for uh, a movie coming out of a small indie house. Um, but in terms of the kind con- I suppose the best way to put it is it's not a mainstream genre the way it used to be. Right, and you're and you're right. Sci-fi has kind of taken its place. Uh, I mean, uh, what was the movie? I mean, Serenity is a western in disguise. Yes, yeah, and, and and not even and not even that dense of a disguise. 
But if you put that guy on a horse, I think there's a whole generation you lose. I think I think the Western that made the most money in the past, say, like 20 years is Django Unchained. Oh, maybe Django, yeah. They made over 160 mil. Yeah, but I would I would make the argument that it's doing that because it's a Quentin Tarantino movie, not because it's a real Western Western. Right. And uh, yeah, it's very operatic. It's very over the top. It's very it's very Quentin Tarantino esque. And I think that was its commercial strength. Yeah, even the Hateful Eight made fifty four million, which is pretty impressive given that the movie's pr- pretty much like a chamber piece. Yeah, it's almost yeah. a play. I would say one of the things that the Western hasn't done in a long, long time, too, is have fun with itself. Quentin Tarantino at least has had fun with the Western. But when you look at a lot of these modern Westerns, they are very somber for the most part. <laughs> um, all right. Oh, so, yeah. Bill, I, I don't know. Like, we always ask the question, where can we find you online? I don't know if you have an online presence or not. But I do know that you've got a couple of books that are available for people. I do. And you can find them on Amazon if you're a movie freak. Um I did, uh, I think it came out, you know, last year and year before, um, my book on the wild bunch, which is probably why I mentioned it so much. Um, believe it or not, I'm blanking out on the title of my own book. I also had a book on screenwriting come out last year uh, called the screenwriter's notebook. And this year, a novel median gray. If you like movies like the French connection and Serpico, I think you'd like this book because it's a cop novel set in New York City in the early 1980s when the city was still nuts. I I remember the name of your and, book. It's the American classic, no? The Wild Bunch, the American classic. The American classic that changed westerns forever. Thank you. There we go. Yeah, and the the rules of screenwriting and screenwriting and why you should break them. Um, that was that was one, and then uh, I did another one called the Screenwriter's Notebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so definitely check those out. Um, I don't really have a presence online, so you can't really find me at the moment. Although I do expect to start continuing uh, doing movie reviews for Goomba Stomp this year. Um, work has gotten to a point where I can do do that again, and hopefully I can go back out to coffee shops at some point. That's where I like to do most of my writing work, and right now, the last year, that just hasn't been possible. Uh, I, I can't write at home, that. Bill. It's it's impossible for me to write at home. I don't know why. I'm in the basement next to the water heater. That's where I have to teach my classes from, too. I'm surprised you're not writing a bunch of serial killer movies uh, <laughs> from that movie. <laughs> uh, Rick, where can, we, where can people find the podcast if they, uh, if they haven't found everything? Where can they find you online? Um, the podcast is everywhere. I mean, it's on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, Amazon, you name it. All the links are embedded in each and every single one of the article posts. But um, I'll also put the link to Bill's books because you can basically find them all on Amazon. So I'll, I'll put all the information over at goombastomp.com. But I always say this. We, it's sortedcinema.com. If you go to sortedcinema.com, it's the easiest way to remember it. Sortedcinema.com will redirect to the podcast you'll find our archive just let it be known that you will only find episode 500 and up anything prior to 500 is no longer available to listen to although i am uploading some of the best of the best uh, episodes and reviews that we've done in the past 
throughout the weeks. So they still exist. They're just not yet all available to listen to because I'm sort of sorting through them. It's going to take me like years to actually get them all back online. So I think I think that's about it. And on Twitter, it's Sorted Cinema. So SortedCinema.com. All right. Then we'll be back next week with uh, our next film. We'll see you then. 